Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, when he heard about Wizards of the Coast's new article about the state of design, he said, wait, which state is that? Is that the one by California? It's Matt Morgan. So today I was going to do a joke about hay, but then I decided to bail it. Or <laughs> bail on it, I should say. But, you know. Wow. I that's I mean, Matt, is that what you say when you meet a bale of hay? Is you're like, hey, bale? So no. Is that, is that- no, I, I I don't. Um and the fact that you're trying to force that on me, Joey, that's kind of the last straw. <sighs> I This is an audio medium, so I don't want to like applaud too loudly, but you deserve a standing ovation for that one. That was excellent, Matthew. Well, thank you. I mean, coming up with hey jokes kind of puts you in a bind sometimes, but you you do what you can. I got to move on before I have a conniption. Anyway, up next, when he heard about the state of design, he asked, wait, what is design? Is it like the stop sign or is it like a yield sign? Which one is it? It's Dana Roach. Um, did you hear about the contest between the ocean and the shore? Uh, no. The score was tied. It was a real back and forth affair, I hear. <laughs> Come on, Joey, you son of a beach. That was fun. <laughs> I, there it is. There I, it is. I don't like this. I'm just going to have to wave all of this away as we move nice. on and officially. Don't be crabby. <laughs> Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? We're going to be taking a look at Mark Rosewater's Magic State of Design 2022. Yeah, these are really, really interesting uh, peaks behind the curtain at Wizards of the Coast that the designers um, sort of compile. Mark Rosewater puts this article together to say, hey, here's how the designs were. And we wanted to go over some of the points that were made in that article because it's interesting to see where Wizards is at. And we wanted to also voice where we're at with Commander stuff, too. So it should be really fun. But real quick, before we get into our main topic, we've got some quick shout outs to do. We'd like to thank Chase, a.k.a. Manicurve, for their help with the post-production on the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manicurves. And if you would like to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels, whether you want to see all of our challenger stats picks that we've done over the years, or you just want to see all the episodes a day early. There's all that and more over at patreon.com, including that very, very coveted weekly shout out spot, which this week goes to Ross Lieberman. You truly are the man. So thank you, Ross, for all of your support. We definitely appreciate it. Awesome stuff. Yes, thank you so much, Ross. Thank you so much to our patrons. Y'all, the support is so, so wonderful. Y'all make the show happen. You really do. So we appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much. Okay, fellas, now let's get into our main topic here. We are talking about the State of Design 2022 from Wizards of the Coast, the article written by Mark Rosewater. And, you know, real quick, before we get into this topic, I think it's probably really important for us to state that, like, you know, magic design, game design, 
it's hard. We're not game designers ourselves, but we just wanted to add in extra stuff here that we thought might be important to see if we are on the same page as Wizards or if there's extra stuff that we hope they're also paying attention to. Just kind of cover some of that stuff and, and, and get more information out there in case Watsi happens to be listening. Who knows? Um, so Dana, how about we pass it off to you? What are some of the uh, general thoughts that appear to you about maybe Watsi's general thoughts about how 2022 went for Magic Design? So kind of the first thing Mark Rosewater talked about was um, overall magic design, right? So kind of a high level look at the last year or so. And he busted that into highlights and lessons. And then there's a couple bullet points between each of those. So for example, let's start with the highlights here. There, there were three main highlights he bullet pointed from the last year. And, and the first was pushing the boundaries of what magic can do. Um, the second was experimenting with how to properly readjust the color pie. And the third was they adapt into how they respond to feedback from people that play the game. Mm. So, so those are what, what Mark Rosewater thought were the three kind of highlights from the year. And I, I do think those things did kind of jump out at, at, to me as well as things they were ab- absolutely highlights of the year. Boundaries especially. Like the last year saw all kinds of crazy changes in what we expect from Magic from, you know, outside the game IPs coming in to like, we just saw that there's going to be those strange sticker cards showing up in the next unset. <laughs> oh, right. Um, you know, the sheer amount of, of dual face cards that we now have, they absolutely are pushing in, into spaces that five years ago, you absolutely never would have thought they would have even attempted to do. And Dana, the point about how they adapted design to feedback from the player base, that is something that, Gavin Verhey has been saying for a long time on social media now, you know, it, they they always will say, you know, we're typically on a two year delay of when they see something by the time they actually able to implement some of these lessons and, and mm. put them out there for us to experience. It takes about two years, which they finally started kind of taking a critical look at how they treated commander as a format. And it finally started to show. And so, yeah, it, it's not that. Gavin Verhey, Mark Rosewater, the entire crew over in Wizards of the Coast offices didn't care. It's just their process takes some time. And and I'm glad that now we're finally able to see some of the fruits of these things that we've been promised for a couple of years now. And now we're actually seeing it in execution. And I do agree that some of the designs, some of the, the ways that they're kind of playing around with things, it is a good thing. They're making progress. I just want to see them continue that progress and don't just kind of hang on their laurels with what they've already done. I really love that. Frankly, going over some of these, like especially to to see them literally say we are adapting the way that we uh, design to the feedback of the customers. Like I feel like as Magic players, sometimes we take for granted just how much transparency we get from this company about the ways that they design cards. Like this is not the type of thing that you'd see from a lot of other. Uh, the designers of really any game, whether it's going to be a video game or a collectible card game like this one. Like we get a lot of behind the scenes peaks and and that is really something that we ought to treasure and to cherish. So I really like that they are willing to share some of this information and it's good for us to hear as well that they're like, you know, there's still more listening that can be done and that requires some big adjustments. And Matt, I love what you said there about how yeah, it does take a lot of time for us to actually finally feel the effects of some of some of the lessons that are learned. Well, and I think you can see that in the kind of that that other bullet point we haven't really touched on yet was experimenting with how to properly readjust the color pie. Mm. That's also a slow process. So like that's going to have a bit of a, a lag as well. Um, and they they mention he mentions in the piece about the most obvious places them trying to figure out how to make white work better in Commander. Um, I, I think they've perhaps made less 
progress than they think they've made, if that makes sense. <laughs> but 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 they're making progress. They're taking shots. I, I think the shots were perhaps too conservative, but they're taking shots, and it is a slow process. So I I, I by no means think like they've failed. I, I think that's ongoing and will continue to be ongoing. And I'm hopeful about it, and I'm glad that they again continue to recognize that is something that needs tweaking. Yeah. And I it almost feels like it was almost a staffing thing too. Sure. The Council of Colors, for example, within the design offices, that's something that the members are all fairly vocal. And I remember the shift when I, th- I believe it's Chris Mooney moved over and they are now in charge of the color white. And so we've seen some of the fruits of, of Chris and, and the, the work that they're putting in. And I think it just kind of took a shift of, okay, this person's excelling in this, but can we give them a different challenge? And I, just, I know specifically, I, I don't believe Chris has shouted out in, in Rosewater's art article, but I think they're definitely worth it. Yeah, I agreed. And there are also these little subtle ways in which we see some of these things emerge as well, right? Like when the ancient uh, dragon cycle came out in the Baldur's Gate set, for instance, like for once, for once, finally, the green <laughs> member of that of that cycle, the one that puts a bunch of plus one counters on things, that was less interesting to us than the white one, which makes a lot of flyers. That one's when it hits someone, you roll a d20 and make that many flying fairy. Like that's a lot of bodies that you could put into play. Or the myogens, that's another one. The white myogen is more interesting to me than most of the other myogens. Like those are really spicy looking cards. And it, like it, it's so rare that the white cycle, uh, the, the white card in any like five color cycle is the one that stands out most to us and like those are subtle things but they matter a whole lot and i'm really delighted to see some of those things i i think the last time this happened where green wasn't the best far and away was the gear hulk cycle all the way back in kaladesh <laughs> right and <laughs> most players weren't even playing back then um <laughs> so that's that kind of shows you how long it's been since green wasn't at the top of the pile there are, though, some lessons. These are the three main points as uh, general takeaways for the year that Mark Rosewater also highlighted here. There are the highlights and now these lesson points. Um, one of them, this one stands out to me as a really big shift, but we'll get to these in more depth in a minute. Uh, Mark Rosewater mentions we need to be more conscious about backwards compatibility when they are designing cards. Um they say that they want to be better about understanding how current designs play with older designs. And that that is actually a big thing for me. But there were two other points to uh, mention here as well. <laughs> and Matt, I know this next one's going to resonate with you. He also says, <laughs> we need to be careful with complexity. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Which has um, almost been, become a meme with <laughs> my comments about new cards and new sets. Uh, every set since call time has been call time as far as how many words can you fit on one piece of cardboard. Yep, especially all the double-sided stuff, twice as many words on any given card. Strixhaven was a lot. New Cavana was a lot. That's definitely uh, a lesson I'm glad to see. And Matt, I know that one resonates with you. Um, And then the third point that they mentioned here was uh, they need to be more conscious of how they talk about their products, which is an interesting one that we might get to in more depth, possibly later on in the show. If it's okay with you guys, I actually want to linger on that first one about being more conscious about backwards compatibility. I don't know about y'all, but to me, that strikes me as like a very different design standard or philosophy than we're used to. Most of the time, I felt like a lot of design was kind of like, here are the cards that we were making for these standard environments, for instance, and we can't always, we can't go back and play test every single card that we make in things like a legacy and vintage and the entire breadth and depth and complexity of Commander. Like, that's manpower that no company has, let alone Wizards. So to see that they are making a shift there, uh, that I don't know. That one stands out as a really big uh, thing to to see. That that one's pretty wild to me. Yeah, just them acknowledging the the kind of domino effect of a new card, and you know it, that's also 
partially due to the changing landscape of formats, right? Five-ish years ago, you know, there was Commander, there was there was Standard, Modern, and, you know, Vintage and Legacy, basically. Um, the, the last two of which didn't see a ton of play because of the, the barriers of entry. So you had, you know, functionally three formats, Modern, Standard, and, and, and Commander. That's not the world we live in anymore. Like, <laughs> there's a ton of different formats, including digital-only ones. Um, many of which have some eternal elements in them. So it's yeah, it's it's not just does this a card affect vintage legacy? Well, we can ignore that because it's they're they're so infrequently played. So maybe keep a you know side eye on modern or something. That's really it. That's not where we're at. They they have to they have to pay much more closer attention to those kind of things. So I'm glad they've acknowledged it because this stuff is way more impactful on other formats than perhaps it once was. And and honestly, it's kind of a will about sneaking time because <laughs> we used to get commanders all the time that would they'd interact with one card and you'd have an infinite combo. I, I know Professor Onyx had the the chain of smog or was it the chain of smog or chain of? I, I think you're correct. Yeah. Yeah, chain of smog combo. I mean, it something that you just two card combo. It's not terribly interesting for a majority of players. Like, yes, there, there is a certain section of players that, that they go for that. And that's fantastic. But for the broader player base, finding cards that just, Oh, well, we didn't think about this interaction. Well, now there's the, the, the design team for casual cards. Um, I, I know we have several friends of the podcast that are on that team mm-hmm. and it's awesome to see that they're designing cards with that in mind and doing that kind of homework that we kind of hoped because what, <laughs> As a former competitive player, played a lot of Legacy, a lot of Modern, when they said, we don't really test for Modern and Legacy card interactions, well, that's how you get in some of these terribly unsavory states. Right. And I'm glad that they're finally starting to do, to do that. You know, it, I, so this might be where we start hopping around to different points that were made in the article, but much farther down, um, th- this feels like a, a connecting thread for sure to what we just mentioned there about like making sure things are backwards compatible. Um, a note that Mark Rosewater also has about the Baldur's Gate set, which is farther, farther down here, um, is mentioning that a big note that they've received from players is to stop designing commanders that usurp existing commanders in already existing decks and start making ones that force players to build something new, basically. Um, I, I, I see that phrase and I just like... I immediately Corvold pops to mind. Like I just like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but like this feels to me like a Tulane Corvold, those right? Yeah. Those types of things. Like those certainly incited quite a lot of constant. Like we're we're still talking about how ridiculous those commanders are, and they're tended to be. You know, those are the biggest examples of them. But there are certainly a whole lot of commanders that feel like when they are introduced in a new set, they kind of oust out some of the other commanders. Where it's just like, oh, well, this thing that I was doing that was a little bit niche now it's been uh, supplanted by this whole new, much bigger force. And you know, those are just two very obvious examples, but there are more of them. And and Dana, I know that this point is a lot bigger with you. So like seeing the backwards compatibility point that they said was a broad thing over the year and then seeing this other point farther down in the article, it felt to me like something that I think really resonated with you to this, like, thank goodness, right? Like, good, yes. we don't want yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I do think this is one of those lagging things where it took them a few years to figure it out. And I do think they've done a much better job in the last year or two years or so with, with not printing as many of those commanders that felt like it made it pointless to play anything else in that color pair or, you know, color grouping. <laughs> um, so I think they caught that a while ago, but I'm glad to see them at least acknowledge that it was a problem they had and, and that they're going to try to avoid it. Yeah, giving giving us strictly better versions of commanders, like we, we joke a lot, the, the Corval problem, the, the Chulane problem. If you're playing those colors, why wouldn't you be playing that? And It's kind of a weird situation to be in if you're a player because 
it almost has to cross your mind. Well, if I'm just trying to make this deck better, that's a, that's a very, very easy way to do it. Yeah, it, it, it makes the game smaller in a lot of ways. You print a new mm -hmm. commander and it makes the game smaller because it eliminates a bunch of other commanders. And yes, you can still play them, but that's not a very good feeling to feel like by choosing something that isn't that heads and shoulders better commander, you are immediately holding yourself back. That's just not fun for anybody. So the best way to avoid that is just not print those commanders that <laughs> nudge out everything else. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I'm glad to see them acknowledge that. And I think they've already begun to address it. And it puts so much pressure on what comes next too, because yeah. it always will stack up to what you've done. Like yeah. if you print something that's a worse version, the players are going to let you know. They're going to say, this is a worse version of a commander that does the exact same thing, only better. And then you also have to, you know, eventually you're going to have to do something that is better than that. And do you want to put that kind of pressure on yourself? Or do you want to do what they did with Baldur's Gate, for example, where they printed things that are specific, things that are maybe a little narrow, but they're just not generically powerful and are going to benefit every single strategy, no matter what you're doing in those colors. And that we've praised Wizard of the Coast several times for that shift in momentum. Oh, yeah, that, that's that's huge. On, honestly, I, is it OK to like move to some of the stuff that the other lessons that they had about sure. Baldur's Gate? Because no, no, we're, we're going to linger on this point all day. Yeah, yes, Joey, <laughs> we can, we can move on. Well, I, no, I found the <laughs> discussion points that were here. Shush, Matt. I found some of the discussion points that were here in the discussion about Baldur's Gate to be very interesting. Like they have a lot of highlights here that are certainly worth mentioning. The set had a lot of flavorful top-down D&D designs. The draft was a lot of fun, and I'm going to linger on that one. Like the draft of Baldur's Gate is so dang fun. It is some of the most fun I've had playing Commander, period. It is wonderful. I've never heard a single person who's played this to be like, eh, wasn't for me. I, I've seen nothing but joy for folks who've actually played this set. It was wonderful. Um, they mentioned that uh, the Commander designs were original, accounted for a lot of the feedback from Commander players. And that's a thing that we just said as well. But some of the lessons about Commander Legends Baldur's Gate were weird to me, or a little bit like I'm not sure if I agree here. So this is maybe I want to like add in a little bit of pushback on Wizards or maybe uh, another thing here. Like one of the lessons that they have here is that it shouldn't have been labeled as Commander Legends because uh, apparently a complaint that they received a lot was that players were expecting the set to be something that it didn't turn out to be. Since it was labeled Commander Legends, that implied certain things about what would be in the set that weren't in the set, according to this article here. And I don't know, that doesn't quite resonate with me, but I want to see if it does with you guys. It, it doesn't not resonate with me. Like, I don't have a problem with it. I, I think it's kind of nitpicky, but like, it's also one of those things where, okay, but if the, if the players would have preferred a different label because it set their expectations, okay, I'm not going to fight that. I, I, I see what you're saying entirely, but I also feel like grand scheme of things, it, it, if the players in general felt that way, then it's not the kind of battle maybe worth fighting, if that makes sense. Just, okay, well, mm -hmm. we could have relabeled it and that's fine. Well, in, in talking with, just several people on social media about the set too. A lot of the expectations that players say fell short for the set were self-imposed. It wasn't anything that Wizards of the Coast gave us or, or said about the set that is factoring into their expectations. They were saying, well, there, there weren't any great reprints and they never said leading up to the set that this was going to feature a lot of reprints because they knew and we knew that Double Masters was on, was on the horizon. We knew that there was a ex exclusively reprint set coming immediately after. And that's another issue that we'll kind of talk about in a little bit. But we kind of knew and it was assumed that this set was going to focus on newer cards. And so when players say, well, there's no reprint values, we were never told this was going to have a lot of reprints. There were some. There was some good land bases that were that were reprinted. But 
the the expectations that I think a lot of players put onto this set were self imposed, and it, they kind of set themselves up to be disappointed. This this is already okay. So Matt, what we just set up here was a minefield to walk into. So I'm we're fully aware. To- <laughs> yeah, and, and we've, we like we t- we had a really good conversation with a lot of our patrons in our Discord about this. Mm. Um, and, and, and I another shout out to Patreon.com/slash/EDHRecast because <laughs> we do have fantastic conversations about this, and, and it's something that we got to talk about. And mm-hmm. I know that I'm fully not representative of the entire player base, but I think that's just one observation that I made in having some of these conversations was some of you know some people would say well they didn't do this like well they they said they never said they were going to do that and so it's just (laughs) it's kind of drawing conclusions from things that aren't really there yeah so this yeah this is this is delicate this is difficult this is this is weird sure yeah it absolutely is and and we're we're gonna get comments about it we already we they're already there they've already been (laughs) right yeah Uh, yeah the but i i want to touch on specifically what you mentioned about how double masters was so close on the heels of this set and Mm. this actually feels to me like the thing like since those two sets were so close to each other it feels to us as players that we are subconsciously comparing them to one another and noticing shortfalls of them because of how close they are like to me I don't feel like the it shouldn't have been labeled as Commander Legends is the problem. I don't think the name game is really here. I think this is kind of a lesson that means Watsi's maybe missing the forest for the trees a little bit. To me, the actual culprit here is how many products we've received. And like within the course of like one calendar month, like within 31 days, we've received like three sets in a row because these sets were like right on the heels of each other. So that forces us to view them in competition with one another. I, I certainly want really good reprints in basically any set that they do. But if like the fact that Dockside Extortionist was not reprinted in Commander Legends does not make the set a fail for me. And I see a lot of discussion online that kind of assumes that since it didn't have a reprint like Dockside, that it was therefore a complete failure. And that sometimes morphs the conversation. And this is where it gets really wild. Sorry, minefield of comments, but this is where we're going, apparently. <laughs> this, it morphs sometimes into a discussion that the set is also bad because the designs aren't good. And there are folks sometimes that you see on like Reddit or places where, and this is, I think this is a really poisonous thought, but some folks sometimes say it out there where they're like, if the set doesn't add must-haves to the format, then it's not adding anything to the format at all. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. But that sometimes the conversation morphs into that's just not how i feel about that set i've built a lot of stuff from that set and there's some spicy cards that are going on in there those ancient dragons are cool my babala saga deck people do not respect the babala saga every time i play that deck against someone they're like wait what does that do like i really like this set but like the the conversation morphs from a discussion about reprints to a discussion about power and i'm like y'all this is this is morphing a lot of weird ways and i just like (laughs) anyway that that was a lot i'm sorry but yeah (laughs) So I'm gonna I'm gonna bail out Matt here from from any controversy by, <laughs> by but are you gonna one up me? But by saying something much much more much worse. Um, oh no. <laughs> so so first of all, I think one of the best things the rule committee does in general is make rules and make decisions based on what's best for the format, not what commander players want, because those two <laughs> things don't always overlap. Applause again. I'm, and I, I think. <laughs> And I think Commander Legends was a set printed in a way that was filled with cards that are good for the format in a way that maybe aren't necessarily what the players want because those things don't always overlap. Mm. I think it was filled with a bunch of cards that make for interesting decks, that make for interesting deck brewing, that make for fun gameplay. 
And I don't know if that's necessarily what the players always want, even though it's maybe better for them to get this than it is to get <laughs> what they think they want, which is more jeweled lotuses and more dockside extortionists and more fierce guardianships. And I don't <laughs> think that's good for the format, even if players themselves think that's what they want. And I think this was a, this is what's best for you, child. And I, I that sounds terribly paternalistic and people are going to be mad at me for saying that. But I do think in a lot of cases, they know what's what's better for you than you do. And I, I think this was the set that's good for the game and good for the format, even if you, a lot of the players didn't realize it. This, we, we just need to change our names to the EDH Retcast to the Baldur's Gate Apologists at this I point. Guess, sure, absolutely, because we all love the set. Yeah. Well, so, but, but like, <laughs> it's so true, though, Matt, because, like, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm going to talk directly to my camera right here with some of the folks out there because there are folks who are saying that the only reason we could possibly like this set is because we must have been paid to like it. And I'm just like, miss me with that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, we're here to actually tell if we were paid, we, Watsi, how we feel. I, I would be in a much better office. Now, don't get me this. wrong. If someone wants to pay me to like a set, you can do that. Yeah, my my, <laughs> I, my I integrity is for sale. Thing. Absolutely. <laughs> I just I can like, be purchased. I, but but yeah. I I also agree with Dana on on what you were saying about how like the set gave us cards that we needed, not cards that we wanted, uh, because. Mm -hmm. When, when players say, well, there was nothing like a jeweled lotus in the set. If, Good. if Good. you remember <laughs> when we first saw jeweled lotus, social media, like, like Magic Twitter, I remember exploded. And I'm so, so sorry to Sheldon Mennery and the rest of the Rules Committee and their mentions blowing up because people wanted that card banned before people even had a chance to open it in packs. So, so it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where if you yeah. don't print any jeweled lotuses, people are mad that you didn't print any jeweled lotuses. But if you do print a new new jeweled lotus, they're mad that you printed a new jeweled lotus. And so it's just <laughs> it's such a a catch twenty two situation. And I don't think that I, this sounds very dismissive, and, and I don't mean it to be. But there are some players that you're just not going to win with. And I think that sure. yes, their their criticism is valid, and you can definitely learn lessons from that. But people with complaints, they like to complain, but they don't like to offer solutions. And so finding a way hmm. to find a way around a solution from that, that's that's the challenge that, like Joey said, we're not game designers. We don't have that incredibly stressful and high pressure job, but also they, they're doing a great way of finding solutions from the wave of, of feedback and criticisms that they're getting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> this... I have one final thing that is like tangentially related to this, and it goes back to one of the points that was uh, one of Morrow's overall lessons about the year about uh, better communicating the stuff about products. Like we began the Baldur's Gate discussion where one of the points that they had there was like what the, the set was named might have impacted how people received the set. Um, and that they want to make sure that they are more communicative about the expectations of what will actually be in a product. And I just, I don't think that that is actually the case for the Baldur's Gate set. I think the product overload is more of a culprit here about how we interacted with that set. And that leads to a lot of morphing discussions and all of that. But it is still the case that Watsi does need to be aware of the ways that they communicate stuff that will be in certain sets. Such is the case with Double Feature, which they admitted was a complete failure <laughs> in every possible way. Because You know what I would rather do instead of talk about whatever that Double Feature was? 
I, I just rather <laughs> challenge some stats. How about that? I just want to avoid and put that off as long as possible. Listen, I get you, Matt. And that was a good segue. And you know what? We'll even stick with it. But like in this article, Morrow said, players felt we misled the audience on what the contents of Double Feature was going to be. And that's because they did mislead the audience <laughs> on what the contents were going to be. And that's my final word about that. That's where the biggest lesson is. So like you could have just left it at players felt. Sure. Players felt. <laughs> we, we all felt that one. Okay, so we still have some other things to say. And you know what? There's, there's actually something missing from this design article that I want to get to as well. But we will get to that in a moment because, Matt, you're right. Let's simmer down with some challenging the stats. Because, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of data on Track that we don't always agree with. So, Matt, how about you start us off by challenging the stats this week? Well, I'm not going to challenge the stats. But we did get an email from Darun, um, who's so close to Darun, one of my favorite early 2000s techno musicians. Um, but Darun emailed us at edhretcast at gmail.com with a challenge that I thought was pretty good. There's, we always talk about cards that give you some redundancy for certain types of effects. And this is a perfect example of that. So uh, Darun says, since the release of Baldur's Gate, 234 Quain itinerant metaller decks have been made. And only 12 of those decks, so 5%, are running White Plume Adventurer. And I think those numbers are way too low. So for those of you who don't remember from the original Commander's Legends uh, set, Quain Itinerant Meddler is a white and a blue for a legendary rabbit wizard that's a 1-3, and you can tap it and have each player may draw a card, and then each player who drew a card this way gains one life. So it's kind of a group hug type of situation, and they're talking about White Plume Adventure, which does come from the new Commander Legends set, which are totally different, apparently, as we just discovered. <laughs> um, so White Plume Adventurer is two and a white for an orc cleric that says when white plume adventure enters the battlefield you take the initiative and then at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep untap a creature you control and if you've completed a dungeon untap all creatures you control instead so darun compares this to drum bellower which is being run in almost 40 percent of quain decks and drum bellower is from the kamigawa neon dynasty commander set that is also two and a white for a two one with flying that says untap all creatures you control during each other player's untap step. So it does a really good Seedborn Muse impression. Mm. So the primary untap target for both cards is Quain, since it allows you to tap Quain on every player's turn and then truly amping up the group huggery. However, White Plume Adventure also adds a cool new initiative of mechanic, which in my opinion is amazing, which Darun, I very much agree. And so, yeah, this is a fantastic observation where you know, you have Drumbellower being played in almost 40% of decks and only five are playing White Plume Adventurer, which gives you the added bonus of introducing initiative into the game. I love initiative and Monarch and all those different types of mechanics that you just kind of add into the game. You only want mm. one or two cards, but it just adds a little bit something of, of, of a spice, as Dana would say, to the game. So White Plume Adventurer, in, you know, giving you the initiative, and also being able to untap your coin to be able to tap coin and do all that. This is just a fantastic challenge. If you want more than one Seedborn Muse type of effect, you already have Drum Bellower. Adding in White Plume Adventurer is just a second copy of that type of effect. And we love those types of challenges here on the podcast. So nice job, Darun. This is a great catch. So if you're looking to soup up your coin decks, everybody, look for White Plume Adventurer to, to help out with that. That is Really sick. Matt, I can't overlook the fact that you mentioned Darud, as in like, is that Sandstorm? Sandstorm? Like that? That's a reference I did not expect to hear on this podcast today. But I was all of your age when that song came out. I'm like, we're literally recording this right before I turned 30. I know. I know. I just had to say Anyway, 
<laughs> All right, let's let's uh, I'll go to my challenge now because I am also challenging the stats on a white creature. This one named Spirit and Doll. Uh, this is a three mana two one spirit creature with shadow and a very funky forecast ability where you can pay two and reveal it from your hand and give target creature shadow until end of turn. And the forecast ability, I believe, is only usable during your upkeep. But the shadow means that it can only block or be blocked by creatures that have shadow. And this is a little unblockable creature, basically. Like, aside from the card Douthy Embrace, you don't tend to see Shadow a whole lot. And even then, Douthy Embrace is a card that we've challenged the stats on on this very show before because of the fact that you don't see Shadow a whole lot. Basically, it makes your stuff unblockable. And in my opinion, that really matters for, I mean, I guess Spirit Commanders could make use out of this for sure, but I especially think it matters for Marisi, Breaker of the Coil, because Marisi says whenever a creature you control hits one of your opponents, you goad all of their creatures. And currently, only a quarter of Marisi decks are using spirit and all and you could use the spirit to either be a an unblockable creature itself or you could give marisi unblockable so you could start getting commander damage hits in when you give your commander shadow i don't know this just seems like a really really cool card if you want to make sure that your stuff is unblockable white actually has an amazing way to do it and its name is spirit and all so give it a look everybody well, the, the, the last but by no means least entry here into this week's Challenge the Stats is a card from way, way back in the olden days of Kaldheim. <laughs> um, this is a card I've been running in a few of my decks. Uh, Crippling Fear, two and two black, so four for a sorcery. Choose a creature type, and creatures that aren't of the chosen type get minus three, minus three until end of turn. So it's probably not going to be a full board wipe in a tribal deck, but it's going to generate a ton of value by taking care of a lot of stuff and none of which is going to be your stuff for the most part. Uh, it's currently in about 10,000 decks, which is a good amount, but the thing I want to note here about it is the five most popular tribes in EDH rec have one thing in common, black in the color identity of the creatures. <laughs> so 10,000 decks is a lot, but it does a ton of work in anything that's tribal or, you know, tribal adjacent. If you are running a bunch of a certain type, even if your deck isn't necessarily geared towards being built around that tribe, it's just a ton of value. I have had fantastic luck with it in the couple decks where I run it. I've seen it be used to great effect in other people's tribal decks. Um, I think it should see more play than the already significant 10,000 decks it's it's showing up in. It's a relatively cheap card as well and generates a ton of value. So if you are playing a tribal or a tribal adjacent deck in black and you're not running Crippling Fear, take a look at it. It's a fantastic card. Nice. That's a, that's a clever challenge, Dana. I'm super into it. All right, uh, fellas, let's get back into our main topic, talking again about the State of Design article and... Uh, I don't know. I guess we can hop around to some of the other sets that are mentioned here, certain positives and negatives that are taken away from there. Um, you know, Dana, you have a lot of thoughts about three color sets. And we got one this year, which was Streets of New Capenna. And there were a lot of lessons, some highlights and, and lessons for that one. And you know, I'm kind of curious for, first of all, your thoughts on three color sets and also your thoughts on Watsi's thoughts on three color sets. I think I just <laughs> demonstrated a loop there. I'm sorry. Uh, take the microphone away from me. Um, so, so this is an interesting one because I, I don't particularly like three color sets, but I think this is a situation where you have to separate the fact that like maybe you don't like onions, but that doesn't mean the pizza that the onions were on wasn't a fantastic pie. Okay. Your personal tastes don't necessarily affect whether or not the, the thing as a whole was well-crafted. I don't like three color sets for a lot of reasons. I don't play three color decks. I do think by virtue of so many cards being three colors, 
it limits the amount of new cards you can potentially add to your decks that aren't three color decks. So like that, that always for me winds up being a little bit anticlimactic because there's just a lot less cards I can like look at and actually consider using in a three color deck. But that's like a me thing. I don't think that necessarily is a thing I want to apply to any kind of lessons about the greater, you know, magic as a whole. Um, people seem to like three colors. And so like, if that is something that does resonate with the player base, having the option, having more things that they can run in their three color deck, I do think that is really, really good. And I'm glad that people who like that got the first chance to play a three color set and add a lot of three color cards to those decks since I think way back in Khans of Tarkir, eight to nine years ago or so. And we've not had many in Magic's history as well. Shards of Alara, you know. Ikoria. There's not been a ton of like dedicated three color sets. So yeah, I, I, I think even if I don't necessarily love that, I, I do think the diversity is really good for the game. I, I heard Joey mumbling Ikoria, which I do agree with. Um, it has been a while, <laughs> but it has been, it, but your point remains. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, and if it's done in small doses, Having those three color sets, it's a nice little change, nice little shift, because there is a lot of design space that I think, especially with how they keep applying these lessons they've been learning, they're getting better and better about designing three color identities. And that is actually one thing that he mentioned in the lessons is the the, the different, uh, what were they, guilds? They were, whatever they were, the, the factions were called in New Capenna, the, the crime families they weren't really distinct enough. I think they're going to learn from that. Yeah. We we 100% are going to see a better and more distinct identity between the different, you know, color aligned sets or, or families, whatever they call them in the next next round, the, the clans that we saw from uh, Tarkir. Mm-hmm. I am excited about that because one thing that I will give Watsi credit for is they do keep getting better and better whenever they, they swing and miss. They circle around and they say, what, what do we get wrong? And that's kind of the point of these design articles, though, isn't it? Where they're, they're, they're saying, this is what we missed, this is what we're learning from, and this is what we're going to fix the next time you see us do something like it. There is another lesson here that pops, it, it like jumps off the page at me from the new Capenna. And actually, this is also true of, I believe, uh, Mario mentioned it about Midnight Hunt as well is that there uh, was not necessarily as much balance in the limited environment for New Capenna and for Midnight Hunt. Uh, there was like a balance issue for the limited environments on both of those sets. And and that is another lesson that strikes me when it comes to New Capenna is that like, I don't know, am I going to sound like a broken record here if I mentioned product overload? We received a lot of products <laughs> and maybe that impacted the ability for designers to uh, be able to spend as much time with the set as as they wanted. Um, that feels like a culprit to me, like uh, maybe uh, another another issue there. Uh, to, just to note, it's just like, uh, if two out of the four standard release sets this year had issues with the limited environment, that's data that I feel is uh, important for Wizards to be taking note of and to finding the root cause of. I, I don't know about that point because we also were on a heater. Like all of 2021, most of 2020, those standard sets, those limited formats were absolutely just gas. And so having a couple misses in a row or or in in a short time span, I should say, I don't think that's too indicative of a problem there. I think they just missed. They they weren't really lining up. And maybe product fatigue for players. Maybe it was product fatigue for Watsy too. They they kind of maybe I don't want to say they mailed it in, but I don't think that having a couple poorly executed limited environments is is that big of an issue. Hmm. Yes, there might be a little bit there, but we also were coming off of probably the best 18 months for limited environments, maybe in Magic's history. All right. So I, 
I struggle to agree with that, but I, I but I also don't want to dismiss it entirely. I'm I'm cool agreeing to disagree there. It's you're right that you know I should make sure I have a big sample size before I start making any claims like that. That's for sure. I do hope that Nukapena is one of the things where they mention the complexity of cards. I hope mm-hmm. that this is because the complexity of Nukapena was a lot. And one of the things that I've vocalized to some designers before is that I hope that some of the I've called them self-contained commanders, that that sort of slows its pace down, for example. I think I mentioned Tivit as an example of this, where this was supposed to be a three-color voting commander, and instead it's doing a whole bunch of extra stuff that also helps enable itself, and it becomes a completely different type of deck than a voting deck because of all of the extra words that help it feed its own ability. I feel like in Capenna we saw a lot of commanders that are both the enabler and the payoff for their effects, and that is the the type of thing that I hope is like you know, a little bit measured. Or or like, here's another weird example. Denry Klin, editor-in-chief. That card applies multiple keyword counters to itself and to other creatures. And I don't think that was intentional. Like, <laughs> this feels to me like a weird type of complexity. I'm just like, I don't know that they knew that all the words do what these words do. Like, why does it need two vigilance counters on it? That's weird. Like, there are little things like that too. So like, the complexity again is one that I think Nuka Penna really resonates for me. One last one I will note that they did mention is how the tricolored land should have been called triumphs to be consistent with the previous entries in the cycle. <laughs> and that is such a silly thing. But it's also annoying. Like, I get it. Like, that that bothered me, too, a little bit. So, I, I mean, it's one of those things that, like, they have in the past done this before. Arcane Signet not being what was established as a Signet as a Mana Rock is always going to be a little bit frustrating. I am always going to be annoyed that... Blightsteel Colossus is clearly a completed version of Platinum Imperium and not Darksteel Colossus in the art. Like, <laughs> things like that that, you know, are just naming issues um, that could be so easily fixed. I, I mean, it's goofy, but, like, I get it, and I, I do wish they'd have done that differently. So, hey, I, I appreciate that they at least acknowledged it. Most important point in the article right there. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. So, so actually, let me rewind us back to the a previous real point, because naming who... <laughs> Yeah, I, I get it, Dana. But also, we talked about complexity of this of the sets a little bit. That's actually a lesson they also noted for Neon Dynasty because we mm. we did go back to Kamigawa, and overall, it seemed like a lot of players really enjoyed it. But that's another it's another lesson that we're seeing here is it's another time they're noting that maybe the complexity got a little too complicated. It was a little too much going on. It was hard to track. I absolutely felt that way too. And I think that's kind of a recurring theme among a lot of the sets lately and it, i've joked every set since call time has been call time but it's also nice for for wizards of the coast to be recognizing that as well kamigawa they note was the home run set of the year and i have to say i agree like yes uh, that and Baldur's gate i also love the Baldur's gate set y'all know that commander that we discussed that earlier but like i i am happy to see the positive feedback came in so much for kamigawa because what a glowing set that was people's complaint about it was that they didn't spend enough time on it yeah, and and I tend to agree. I kind of wanted to see more of it too. And I, I was not someone who came into this being a big Kamigawa homer. I, I wasn't something that I was super cheering for, and it won me over. I, I had nothing against the plane, but like I really enjoyed the set. They they found a way to make me a fan, and that's like like the best thing you can hope for with a set. It also to 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 touch back on the the complexity argument. This was a good set where I think that there was a good bit of complexity, but it was worth it. I think the problem with complexity isn't necessarily complexity. It's when something's complex and not worth the time and energy it takes to figure out how it works. Mm-hmm. Cleave would be an example. We haven't touched on oh. um, the, 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 the two Innistrad sets. Cleave was a very complicated mechanic and wasn't at all worth it. 
I, I still maintain that's true of Mutate. Yes. Like, Mutate is a lot of work. Particularly, it's a lot of work for you as the third party who isn't playing Mutate, keeping track <laughs> of what the Mutate thing is doing. That, I think, is a level of complexity that isn't necessarily great when you're creating work for me. And I think that was something that the, the Kamigawa and Neon Dynasty handled pretty well, where there's a good bit of complexity there, but it felt like it didn't put the onus on, on the third party. And it was, generally speaking, worth it. The complexity paid off for you to have the, the additional things you had to learn, the extra text on the cards. At the end of the day, you were glad it was there. See, I'm, I'm actually going to gonna shush all the people that say that we're paid to praise all these products. Uh, <laughs> because Neon Dynasty, for me, it was fine, I guess. It, it, it wasn't a huge hit for me. It was probably, for me, the low light actually for the past year probably even more so really and that's fine I, i'm i'm glad okay. that both of you enjoyed the set i'm glad that a absolute horde of players loved the set that's that's amazing but also not everything has to be for everybody it's fine that i got that i missed this set i did what didn't resonate with with me like it did with you all because i had other sets that i enjoyed i very much enjoyed a majority of what was going on but neon dynasty was just it I think to to kind of rebut what Dana said, it did feel complex for complexity's sake. It kind of felt like they were trying to show off what they were able to do. And for me, I just, I got lost. I, I tuned out and that's fine because there was plenty of other stuff in the rest of the year for me. I, I didn't force myself to like this. And that, that's totally fine if people liked it or they didn't like it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super into that. Absolutely. I uh, I have to admit, Matt, while you were talking, I was a little bit distracted because Dana mentioned cleave. Um, oh, and I, I couldn't, we all we all believe in the cleave. We don't believe in the cleave. <laughs> I, you know, cleave cleave is like one of the worst named mechanics since Megamorph. Like I think I, I think cleave is a worse sin than Megamorph as a mechanic name because I'm like that's not what this ability is. But like, why are you giving it a spooky sounding name so that it maybe fits on Innistrad? If you called this ability Redact and gave it to the Azorius clan when you returned to Ravnica for the eighth time, it that would be amazing. But like, it did it just didn't belong here. So, but at least they know. At least that lesson is in this article, right? Yeah. At, at least they know. Sorry, you were talking about Kamigawa. I I like your take as well, Matt. There, there were things about it that didn't quite stick with me, but I think the parts that did stick with me stuck so well that I was like, man, the designers had a lot of fun putting this together. You can see the heart and soul that went into it. And th this does make me kind of wonder back to that question about like, did we spend enough time on this set? Mm -hmm. Because to me, it kind of feels like this set was overshadowed by other sets that immediately came on its heels. And I don't know if we would have necessarily benefited by spending two sets on Kamigawa if it feels like we didn't get enough time on there because there were so many other things going on in the Magic Universe at the same time in terms of products. But maybe I'm wrong there. Like, Matt, how long do you think we should have spent on Kamigawa since it didn't miss, uh, since it was kind of a miss for you? So yes, Joey, absolutely. Neon Dynasty didn't resonate with me. But I do actually agree with the notes that they wanted to, or they should have spent more time on the set. the The trend going back the past couple of years of only seeing one set on a new, a brand new plane, especially, and then we move on. Hmm. I do not like this trend, and I'm I'm glad that with Dominaria coming up, we're going to have a few sets there to really flesh out a story. But when we see a brand new plane on a set, I I wish that we had at least two sets to really see what's going on. One set to introduce the world but and then two to really show us what's going on who the characters are who them because we see we get 50 legends a set nowadays so we don't know who the important people are <laughs> until we get some more story and it's just impossible to do that with only one set so yes absolutely every single set i i wish they would go back to the two set blocks and don't call it a block if you don't want to but 
give us at least two sets a year on a plane, even if they're not back to back. So say we, we do call time, then we do something, but we go back to call time. Whatever you need to do, I would love that because then we really get to see what the story is going on. And he, I couldn't tell you anything story-wise for the past two years because of this trend of one set and then we're gone. One set, then we're gone. And I, I absolutely agree. I don't think we need to be locked to a particular amount of sets, but I, I do think they should be more flexible with what they do. I felt like the Rav, return, to, return to Ravnica set, that required three blocks to, or three sets to tell that story. It felt like that didn't feel like it was being unnecessarily stretched out among those three sets. That felt right. So they, they, it could have used three and it used three. They, I, I'm comfortable with them doing that if that's what it takes. If it takes two to tell the story, tell it in two. If it's a self-contained world, I think New Capenna felt pretty self-contained to me, and you can do it in one, do it in one. So I, I feel like they, they're a little bit, they're being a little bit rigid right now. Once upon a time, they were really locked into doing three, whether or not the set maybe warranted it. And whereas they're doing the opposite today, if a set might warrant more time, it felt like they were really sticking to one, no matter what. Um, so hopefully, maybe with this switch over to to the return to to Dominaria United and a couple sets that feel like they're going to be set in Dominaria, at least two of them are, and this might possibly be up to four. Um, I, I like that they're willing to expand that now if the set the the story calls for it, and hopefully we'll see more of that in the future. Where if a if a plane takes two to tell the story, we get two. All right, interesting. Yeah, it just it just feels like you're not giving. Uh, it's obvious that the world building team puts a lot of time and effort. And mm -hmm. like you were talking about joy, like uh, sweat and tears in there too, <laughs> into creating these worlds. And I just want people to be able to enjoy them. Yeah. So only giving us one set and then moving on it, a, it feels like the world building team is trying to show off as much as possible, but also they're short selling themselves because they show off a brand new world that they spent all this time constructing but then we're gone. We don't go back there maybe ever, maybe for 10 years. Right. Yeah. And and that is, I really am a broken record. I'm so sorry. I may, I'll try and make it the last time that I say it, but like that is why I feel product overload it hurts a lot is because it does like yeah. mean that we can't linger on the stuff that is so cool. Like I bet those designers spent a lot of time on it, just like but you said. If, if they and gave us product overload with the same plane, at least then we would be able to see, okay, this is what's mm -hmm. changing. This is what's different. This is who's doing things. Yeah, yeah, it, it is interesting. Like, yeah, I, of of the sets this year that could have used, uh, excuse me, of the planes this year that could have used two sets, Innistrad uh, doesn't yeah. seem like we needed to spend two there. And Kamigawa, oh, it would have been interesting to see. So like, you, I think you might be persuading me over to your position there. I, I think you're right that like setup and then like store, like main story twists for like mm -hmm. a first act and then like act two kind of thing for like a brand new plane. I think that could be an interesting model. And Dana, I like your point about the flexibility of it as well. I think that those are good notes to add into this conversation. Well, and just gi giving us two sets on Innistrad, I'm kind of in a strung out with all of it. <laughs> I I don't, we could not go back to Innistrad for 10 years and I would be totally okay with that. Oh man, these comments are just like, oh, the so fire, oof. just minefield. <laughs> that, that's fine. Like if, if I'm not an Innistrad apologist, I'm a Baldur's Gate apologist, apparently. <laughs> I, so, uh. so we've talked about like all the things that were in the design article. Is there anything specifically that, that you guys felt was left out that you want to talk about? Me, pick me, teacher, pick me. I have a I, Joey, yes. <laughs> your hand is in the air, calling on you. Uh, yeah, no, I think I teased this earlier, right before Challenger Stats, that there is something that I felt was definitely missing from the State of Design article. Um, so I, I did a control F for treasures. 
uh, in this article. And the only time they're mentioned was when Morrow was comparing them to blood tokens, where the the blood tokens, they were kind of received a little bit like, eh, these aren't quite as intuitive as clues or as food or as treasures, where you instantly grok what those things are doing, why treasure provides manner, why food provides life, stuff like that. And that was the only time that treasures appeared in this article. And that seems to me like an oversight. That seems like a mistake. I feel like treasures warrant a lot of scrutiny from Wizards of the Coast. Um, I have also talked with designers who said, yeah, we overdid treasures in New Capenna. And I would have liked to see that reflected in the State of Design article 2022, because I hope that it's a message that all of R&D knows because treasures went overboard this year. And that's just a thing. That's just a, a thing that I want to put out into the universe. And I hope that Watsi listens to it. That's that's my thing that I thought was missing. So thank you so much for asking, Dana. I'm going to put pressure on our editing team and just say, just click the link right here that I'm pointing to currently. Um, <laughs> and that'll take you to our rec room that we did about treasures where we kind of lamented how they're <laughs> everywhere, how they just got blown up to death. Like they're th- honestly, like the exchange rate on treasures to mana can't be one for one anymore. They're just like, they just overloaded it. So, so Joey, I, I agree with your point, but I'm actually going to expand on it slightly mm-hmm. and say treasures are just the most glaring example of a problem Watsi Design sometimes has where they don't understand the concept of too much of a good thing. <laughs> a thing like treasure treasures comes out and is well liked, including by us. We were big fans of treasure particularly back on the the two-set Ixalan block, Mm. and the few times it appeared after that, it was a great addition to the game. And then they kept adding treasures and kept adding treasures and kept adding treasures to the point where I think we all had agreed that it has become a bit of a problem for the game. And it feels like Goad might well become the next example of that, where there's they keep throwing Goad out there as a mechanic to the point where it's going to perhaps start feeling like you're losing control of your ability to play your deck because there's so much gold. Maybe we're not there yet, but like that's a concern of mine as well. So I think in a general sense, I think I wish they would have addressed that perhaps sometimes we see a thing the players like, and then we just really, really go back to that well over and over again <laughs> until it maybe becomes a problem. That's something I wish they would have mentioned that that in addition to treasures, just in a general sense, we need to watch out to not do too much of that. And that is, it's the hardest thing in the world to balance. That's why this- Absolutely. It, it, it's so hard. Like we got more dungeon stuff for, for in Baldur's Gate. We got more dungeon delving mechanics and that allowed more viable dungeon commander options. Like Sephiroth, when it first came out in its own pre-con, a lot of folks were like, I don't know if I have enough support to make this work. And then Baldur's Gate comes along and makes it like, you know what? This actually kind of pops off now. This is, this is actually feeling like pretty good. Or we've always talked before about like, you know, there isn't a lot of energy support to make a good energy commander deck, but that is the thing that they have to apply with a very delicate hand because that is a resource that is really easy to abuse if you overexpose it. Mm-hmm. And any mechanic can become overexposed. And treasures definitely feel to me like the biggest example of that. It, it can happen to anything, but treasures are a thing that like, you know, this is on a lot of the community's radar throughout the entirety of this year. Mm-hmm. So Watsi, I was surprised that it wasn't in your state of design article. I think that it deserved a big mention. Okay, so well, now that we've laid this very, very lovely minefield out. We're going to play Minesweeper <laughs> on our way to the comments section today. Um, why don't we just go ahead and wrap it up before we dig any deeper for the holes that we're going to lay ourselves in? Um, let's just peace out, guys. 
That's that's probably a good move. This was this was a lot. There were a lot of thoughts out there. And I, I think that's good for us to do sometimes is just get all of these out there, see what folks think. It's nice to see what Watsi's, you know, what's on their mind. And these are some of the things on our mind too. And I think that as with any conversation, the truth exists somewhere between all of these things. And so it's nice to help discover. And listeners, we would love to know what y'all thought about the state of design article as well. And uh Matt, it's been a, a, a real treat uh, getting to know your thoughts about the things, even though you don't like Neon Dynasty all that much. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to forgive. So I appreciate you so much, friend. Uh, you better forgive. Otherwise, I'll cleave you. And by cleave, I don't <laughs> actually know what the rules text is on that. So I, I'm making empty threats. <laughs> Dana, I appreciate I, I appreciate your thoughts, too. Please don't cleave me. <laughs> <laughs> Redact, perhaps. I will never cleave, Joey. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Matt, you had the right of it. Let's just close this out. Anyway, right, with this, we, we will <laughs> let, let's, let's wrap it up. And fellas, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can send us a bunch of minefields? Matt? <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast. So if you want to come and spam all the different bombs that we placed for ourselves over there, too, and, and <laughs> pick our brains about that. Uh, you're more than welcome to Wednesday evenings. The games are always super fun. And we have guests, too. So if you want to come shame them for for talking to these inflammatory <laughs> wow. Neon Dynasty homers over here, <laughs> twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast. And Dana, what about you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>